Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. The huge job of rebuilding the Labour Party has just got that much harder with the retirement of its former Deputy Leader and Finance Minister Grant Robertson. When Mr Robertson moves on to his new job as Vice-Chancellor of Otago University next month, Labour will have just nine MPs left who were in the 20-strong cabinet formed after their 2020 election landslide win. RNZ political editor Joe Moyer is in our Wellington studio and joins me. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning, Tyron. Yeah, a lot of people trying to figure out just how much of a blow this is in a way to Labour. Uh, it is very big shoes to fill, isn't it? It's huge shoes. I mean... Grant Robertson has been there for, as we know, 15 years, but he has played some really pivotal roles for Labour and amongst that. Um, he's been very much a support act along the way too. You think the way that, um, I guess, initially when he came in, he was supporting Helen Clark in that advisor role. He obviously was supporting David Shearer at one point. Then he went on to be supporting Jacinda Ardern during that COVID pandemic. And most recently, he's had a very big role in supporting Chris Hipkins in that leadership too, which, you know, many thought he would end up being the leader and he made that decision when Jacinda Ardern stepped down not to. So he has been a big player for a lot of people and I think if you asked anybody in that Labour caucus you know if you lost one person of the team what would be the biggest hit? I think pretty much everyone would say Grant Robertson. So you know looking at Barbara Edmonds moving into that finance role big job ahead for her. Um, She's relatively untested at this point, hasn't had sort of big portfolios, hasn't had a lot of, um, I guess, sort of, you know, media attention, the spotlight on her being grilled, that sort of thing. So it's going to be interesting to Mm. see how she goes. So Grant Robertson, when he first came in in 2017, his big focus was the wellbeing budgets, and he put that into being. Things were then obviously dominated by covid uh, for him, and he's talked about that and the dominant role that played in his in his time. Some of the key legacy policies, however, are interesting, and in particular, the fact that he did push for that wealth tax idea before the election, and then Chris Hipkins annexed that, as well as I think the social insurance scheme as well, which Grant Robertson had been keen on. How much do you think those two big legacy things, kind of being pushed to the side, played in him leaving? It's difficult to say, and I mean, you heard Grant Robertson yesterday saying lots of things like, in hindsight, and you can look back and you could have done differently. I, he's very um, realistic about the impact that COVID had on that time. I mean, I've had interviews and conversations with him in recent years where he's been a little bit reflective, and he's talked about the fact, well, that's the hand we got given. Um, in saying that, obviously there are things that he would have liked to have had done. The social insurance scheme and the wealth tax, he spent a lot of time working on those and obviously had them nixed in quite a, um, a public way as well. If I recall correctly, I think the social insurance scheme, Chris Hitkins actually nixed that from Lithuania. Um, he was out of the country when he did it. So, you know, it's been a lot of work for Grant Robertson. And I think going back to your earlier point about the wellbeing budget, I don't think he would see that he got to do the full extent perhaps of those wellbeing budgets and what he wanted to achieve because if you think about in the COVID times those budgets got ripped up weeks beforehand and mm. and had to be effectively redone because of the situation they were in so a lot of that uh, planning which I think Grant Robertson is you know he's very good at he's a details person a lot of that got thrown out the the window at the last minute. The problem for Labour is that it might have pushed those that wealth tax issue to the side the social investment idea to the side it's still there for the party. A lot of people will say it is sort of the existential question for the Labour Party. They've grappled with capital gains taxes, these types of taxes, for so long and haven't really figured out what to do. They will have to address this. 
Oh, this is the massive elephant in the room for the Labour caucus, 100%. And funnily enough, I mean, before Grant Robertson said he was leaving, uh, Ingrid and I briefly talked about this yesterday in terms of that reset for the Labour Party. And I think that this issue is quite fundamental to that because at the moment you have the Labour caucus in opposition. They're, they're losing. They are together at the moment, sticking together and being collegial. But big issues like tax and what is going to happen in that space will cause splits and divisions in the caucus because because we already know that there are people in that caucus who have different views about which way that this should go. And that is going to be a big problem for Chris Hipkins. You almost get the sense that he's holding off making any sort of decisions or any comment about it, because the minute he does, that's when problems could potentially start for him. So Barbara Edmonds has a big job there. I mean, she's signalled this morning, and I think yesterday as well, that she's open to looking, obviously, all options. And I think the party has basically, and Chris Hipkins have basically said, yeah, they're going to have another look at this. Uh, where do you think she is going to need to put her energies? The other big problem they've got is uh, addressing criticisms that they ruined the government accounts while they were in office, that they've got to restore some credibility. Whether that's fair or not, they're fighting that. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of going to be a bit of a hangover, I guess, from Grant Robertson. Um, You know, you've heard the government coalition partners talk about him being one of the worst finance um, ministers that was seen. and, And that comes to that point of being fiscally prudent and the question marks over whether the spend that took place during COVID uh, was reasonable. Um, And that is is an issue that Barbara Edmonds is going to have to I guess continue to talk to because that's not going to go away. People are going to continue to raise that and over the course of this term and as you get closer to the election campaign, people are not going to forget that and so there are going to continue to be questions around is Labour fiscally prudent when things go bad, how do they respond, what happens to the rest of the country, what sort of a situation does things get left in, and, and that's going to be something that, that Barbara Ebrins is going to have to think long and hard about, I think, and she's also going to have all these other issues around the tax, and, and she's clearly prepared to put all options on the table. Presumably she has her own view. It's possibly similar to Grant Robertson's. She's keeping fairly quiet on that at the moment. But, yeah, some some big issues there for her. In terms of the sort of minor reshuffle and the way in which the, the, the Labour caucus is now structured, she's at four. Uh, is that likely to ruffle? That's quite a big... Uh, well, you have to go into four, really, don't you, if you're going to be the finance spokesperson. But in terms of the rankings, in terms of others there, how is Chris Hipkins handling that? Yeah, I mean... Well, arguably, she should have gone in to third, really, because uh, that is usually where the finance sits after the leader and the deputy. Um, Megan Woods is sitting in that position. Of course, Megan Woods has been around a very long time, very experienced. There were uh, questions, I guess, as to whether, um, you know, Megan Woods might end up being the finance spokesperson. I mean, I put that question to Chris Hipkins yesterday, whether she had been offered it. He sort of said no. And uh, then I said, well, is is this ranking that she's got ahead of um, Barbara Edmonds a sign that perhaps she wanted it and didn't get it, so therefore she gets the higher ranking? Um, Was a a no on that as well. Uh, As to what went on behind closed doors, who knows? Can't answer that one for you. But, yeah, I don't know that it would necessarily ruffle feathers. I think Barbara Edmonds was always talked up as the only other person that really had the credentials within the Labour Party outside of um, chatter about Megan Woods. She is a specialist tax lawyer. She knows the system. I mean, she worked for years in um, Stuart Nash's office and ministerial office. Um, as Grant Robertson said, she knows numbers. So I don't think within the caucus there would be any suggestion that she's not um, up for the job. But again, I come back to that point about relatively untested at the moment. So it'd be interesting to see how she goes. Just a final comment. We'll speak to Chris Hipkins a little bit later in the programme. 
Uh, he is obviously facing a little bit of scrutiny and criticism following that poll in which his personal approval ratings fell, which perhaps wasn't a huge surprise given he's no longer Prime Minister. Uh, the argument being he's put out no press releases. He's sort of sitting back in the pocket a little bit, uh, not sort of trying to, what they say, bark at every car. Is there a danger in that strategy or does that make some sense? I actually think it's a good strategy and it's, it's funny. It's, you know, as opposition leader, you can't win, can you? No. Because um, <laughs> we've often criticised opposition leaders for parking at every car. He's now choosing not to and people are saying, oh, well, why aren't you parking? I mean, it's actually impossible and I don't think that press releases are really a metric for whether you're doing a good job or not. So while all of the oxygen is being sucked up at the moment by those three coalition government parties, I don't see any reason for him to be jumping out and trying to grab all the attention. Joe Moyet, thank you very much. RNZ Political Editor. Well, Auckland Council has made public its rates rise options. It includes uh, a pay more, get more model. That one comes with the 14% rates rise and a pay less, get less option with a 5.5% increase. Joining us now is uh, Henderson Ward Councillor Shane Henderson. We were hoping, I'm not sure if she's there, to get a uh, faux ward councillor Karen Leone as well, uh, but I'm not sure that we've been successful there. So, uh, kia ora, good morning, uh, Shane. Now, there's also a third option, a middle option out of the ones I just spoke about in the intro there, which is right down the middle, that 7.5% rates rise, uh, which the Mayor is supporting. Where do you sit on that spectrum and why? Yeah, look, I'm still uh, waiting for the public. So we've uh, just passed, uh, as of yesterday, our consultation document. Uh, So we're going to be asking Aucklanders have their say, and I'll be sort of reading those subs and listening very closely to what they have to say, and I plan to vote accordingly. What are the options that Aucklanders need to consider in terms of the, the payoffs here, the trade-offs? Yeah, any uh, any budget process is basically a balance between how much rates you kind of want to pay or, or how much you can, you can afford, etc., versus the services that you get in the public. So there's no such thing as a free lunch, as they say. Um, that Those three options really are a reflection of, look, do you want your city council to be doing more, doing less, or trying to maintain what we have? Uh, those are kind of the three uh, lines to draw, I think. You've said uh, local government has a funding crisis. So how should Auckland cope with that? I mean, rates rise is just inevitable regardless. Yeah, it's a bit frustrating to have the conversation every year that uh, rates rises are continuing to be higher than people may expect just to maintain the services that we have and that people rely on. And this is an experience that all across the country we have uh, with large cities putting up rates uh, you know, fairly high just to maintain basic services. So we need to work with central government on a better solution to fund local government. What options are being considered in terms of that Aucklanders can have their say on in terms of selling things, essentially? Yeah, so... um whether you, go, whether you go with a pay less or a pay more, et cetera, kind of target, they will have um, targets for essentially asset sales uh, within those. We haven't gone down the path of um, identifying what that may involve, um, but, you know, that that is scary for a lot of people. So yeah. I think that's something that people need to keep in mind when they're uh, giving that feedback. Uh, the other element that we're consulting on is a future fund, uh, which essentially is to uh, put the port into a lease situation and to uh, essentially sell the airport shares and reuse them to reinvest into um, different parts of the market uh, to give Aucklanders a a different uh, return. So those are the kind of things that are being consulted on. 
And what about cutting back in services? What's on the on the potential chopping board? Yeah, look, we're always looking for efficiencies and we've um, found sort of over a billion dollars of them over the term of uh, the super city. Uh, but there's always stuff that we could be doing better. So I think that any kind of ideas people have would be really welcome on how we can actually deliver the same services but with less money. Uh, that's very important. But, um, you know, and, and there's a bunch of different details in terms of um, transport where we've got to find a $600 million budget hole, we've got to cover that somehow. Um, those are the kind of things where you could be looking at cutbacks depending on where we vote. Okay, just finally, so w- w- where do Aucklanders go? How do they have their say? How do they, What are the nuts and bolts of that? Yep, so you pop on to AK Have Your Say. That's AK Have Your Say. The consultation period is 28th of Feb to 28th of March, so you've got a month, and I just encourage Aucklanders to get that, that feedback in and really have, have your say and uh, tell us how you see the future of the sea. Appreciate your time this morning. That was Henderson Ward Councillor Shane Henderson there. Do have your say on Auckland's 10-year budget. A lot to consider there. The number of hate incidents reported to police increased by 12% over the past year, most of it uh, race-related. Despite the increase, hate crime and hate speech are still not standalone offences. And Nationals Coalition Agreement with New Zealand First rules out introducing any hate speech laws. Our reporter Lucy Shear has more. The police define and record hate crime and abuse as when hate forms at least part of the motivation for the offence. Figures show that over the past year, 82% of hate-related offences were based on race, 10% targeted sexual orientation and about 6% were faith-related. Out of the more than 9,000 reported offences over the past two years, more than a third targeted Asians, followed by 9% affecting people of colour and about 7% targeted Māori. More than 3,700 cases were reported in Auckland, the highest among all major centres, followed by Canterbury and Wellington, both with about 1,100 cases reported. Rizwana Latif, who's of South Asian and African descent and of Islamic faith, says she frequently experiences racist abuse. Recently, she was verbally abused by a man at a swimming pool in Hastings. I don't need to share my, this pool with you, with the likes of you, and then I don't want to be in the same pool as someone like you. And then he got off and was like, oh, you know, effing bitch, black bitch. Rizwana Latif is no stranger to such behaviour. Last year, when she stood for local elections in Hastings, the word terrorist was spray-painted over her billboards. She also received threatening notes in her letterbox. So they were like, you're coming here, you're taking on a job. And, you know, they, they said something about my name. And then they said, well, that I was just a piece of black. Briswana Latif reported some of the abuse to the police, but she questions what actions they can take other than recording the complaint. Hate crime based on prejudice towards a certain group can be considered as an aggravating factor in sentencing, but hate crime and hate speech are still not standalone offences. That's despite recommendations from the Royal Commission inquiry into the Christchurch terror attacks. Last year, Kapuya, the ministerial advisory group overseeing the response to the Commission's recommendations, wrote to the then Justice Minister, expressing deep concerns about the speed of the government's response. Former Race Relations Commissioner Mem Foon says he wants the new government to prioritise the legal reforms in hate crime and hate speech.
I would encourage the uh, new Minister of Justice to actually um, make a serious uh, attempt to ensure that legislation is put in as soon as possible. Menfoon wants it to be easier to report hate-based abuse. I definitely believe that there should be more publicity and communications with our communities in terms of uh, reporting these things separately and making it easy. Justice Minister Paul Goldsmith says the government is currently focused on its 100-day plan and all other work items will have to be considered in due course. And the Minister for the Response to the Royal Commission's report into the Christchurch shootings, Judith Collins, says she'll be meeting with Kapoya to hear its concerns. But she says the coalition agreement with New Zealand First includes a policy to stop the work on reforming hate speech legislation. Our reporter Lucy Shear. Well, a prominent spelling mistake at a West Auckland bus stop is driving locals round the bend. The bright yellow letters painted on Teatatu Road spell bus SOTP, S-O-T-P. Uh, Felix Walton has more. On Teatatu Peninsula, pedestrians are stopping for pictures with Auckland's latest tourist attraction. A new bus stop opposite the local library is causing a stir. Auckland Transport says a contractor made the spelling mistake while painting the road on Monday night. Business owner Gloria Halloran says the so-called bus sotip is an embarrassment. Well, this morning uh, we got it on the uh, Facebook page that um, somebody had spelt it wrong, so we all went out and had a look at it, and there, sure enough, it's spelt with uh, S-O-T-P, I think it is, and, um, yeah, we think it's an absolute joke, the amount of money that's actually spent. you think they'd have a stencil that actually says stop. Resident Shane Callahan saw a photo of the mistake online and came to see it in person. He reckons SOTP could have a deeper meaning. You know what I think that stands for? It's got bus stops on Territory Peninsula. That's what it actually means. Oh, I saw it on a local um, Territory community page and uh, I thought, oh, someone's going to Photoshop and they'll be that dumb, but it's there, I've seen it myself. Others don't know whether to laugh or cry. I just think they need to be a bit more onto it, especially here, sort of. After all the work they've done, it's a bit of a shame, but it's still fun. It's a bit of fun while it lasts. They, they had to mark out the O and the T and the P. I don't know how this happened. A local teacher says it's a learning opportunity. It's hilarious. They should have gone to school and stayed there. <laughs> Make sure you sit your spelling tests at school and don't skip them. Make sure you practice every night. Signed sincerely, every school teacher. Gloria Halloran says the mistake needs to be corrected as soon as possible. I think they should change it because it's going to make us look like idiots, make them look like idiots, isn't it? <laughs> to actually spell it wrong like they did, it's so funny. Everybody around here's having a good laugh, that's for sure. Waitakere Ward Councillor Shane Henderson agrees. Yeah, it's obviously uh, fairly embarrassing and I, I think we need to be rectifying that as quick as we can. I'll uh, be contacting Auckland Transport right away. We've got to get it corrected immediately. He says the sign needs to be repainted to keep the road safe. It's got to be very clear what it is, right? So this kind of mistake, you know, we've got to just rectify as quick as we can. It's really outside of the standards of, you know, a modern city. So it's not good, man, but I've got no idea how they made that mistake in the first place. It's a real weird one. Auckland Transport says the bus stop will be repainted at the contractor's expense. And news in uh, this morning, Nathan Rariri drives past that bus sotip and he says it is now uh, being repainted overnight. Uh, Easy mistake to make. They well, are yeah, when you do them. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't exactly... Um, 
I'm sure the person knew how to spell stop, but just kind of got a little bit confused. It was a bad day at the office for someone. Yeah, yeah. Someone's going to be shouting morning tea for his, uh, his or her mates, uh, won't they? Well, a German tourist whose motorbike was stolen in a tiny Hawke's Bay settlement, he says he's shocked that the police decided not to press charges despite finding the vehicle at a nearby house. The man, who RNZ is not naming, was staying at a batch in Newhaka when his bike went missing. Jemima Houston has the details. The tourist found the motorbike missing when he and his son got up very early on Monday morning to watch the Rocket Lab launch at Mahia. He reported it to the police at 8 o'clock. Then uh, the motorbike that just got stolen drove past, but already uh, completely stripped. All the fairings taken off, short wired, young guy with a bandana, no helmet, uh, going up and down the road, basically provoking us. The man jumped onto the pair's other bike and says he followed the thief to what local police later told him was a house linked to gang members. There, the pursuit took a scary turn. Went into the driveway where he went, and that was dodgy ass house with several people there laughing at us. At the end, uh, we saw people on from that house making uh, life-threatening gestures. You know, we cut your throat sort of thing, you know. The tourist called the police again, but it took one and a half hours for officers to arrive from Wairoa. In that time, he and his son felt they were being threatened again. There was like a a black window, big V8, BMW, four-wheel drive going up and down the road, checking us out. So we were hiding in the house, talking to the police, and uh, feeling absolutely threatened. My son was, uh, you know, he was not in a good state. The officers quickly found the stolen bike stripped of everything, including its lights and number plate. The pair then got a police escort partway back to Wairoa. That was really scary because we were still really worrying that somebody follows us and drives us off the road. He says he's looking at a bill of about $6,000 to fix the damage. We are all right. You know, we are not harmed. Nothing really happened. All the rest can be replaced. But, I mean, it's, it's, uh, what it clearly showed to us is that, that dark underbelly of New Zealand. He says local officers told him it would be too difficult to lay charges. The police told RNZ it would be challenging, although two cases have been opened, one for theft and one for threatening behaviour. A spokesperson says the location of the bike, while suspicious, does not prove that the occupiers of the house stole the bike. This means the police evidence test may not be met. Jemima Houston with that story. A proposal to charge people to park in park and ride car parks in Wellington is being called mean-spirited by Porodua's mayor. Greater Wellington Regional Council's Transport Committee is to discuss bringing in the charges tomorrow. Nick James reports. Free park and ride bays are a key feature at train stations around the Wellington region as commuters park up and jump on a train to work. But they are getting busier and are sometimes used by non-train users, so Greater Wellington Regional Council's Transport Committee is considering introducing fees. Committee Chair Thomas Nash says if charges are introduced, they'll likely be linked to the cost of a train trip through the new national ticketing solution due to come into effect in two years. That's important because that will will help to make sure that people who are using the park and rides at railway stations are actually getting the train because that is a condition right now uh, for using it, but we have no way of, of controlling that or policing it. Council documents note introducing fees could cause cars to start clogging neighbouring streets, could force more people to drive into work and could add to people's living costs. 
Porirua's Kenipuru station has the largest park and ride area with a thousand spaces. Porirua Mayor Anita Baker says the proposal is mean-spirited. At Porirua, the, train, the bus services aren't that great, so people are parking at those train stations. We've got very large parking areas at all our train stations, and they're well used, and Greater Wellington know that, so I think it's pretty rude. Anita Baker worries more people will just drive instead. Wellington's trying to drive the car out, so... I think it's just pointless. You you see all these cars already going in with one person in or two people going in. We're trying to get people on public transport for climate change and everything else. So I do think that's sort of um, just the wrong way to go. James travels half an hour each day to Masterton train station. If it's reasonable, yeah, yeah, I, I could live with that, but that's just me. There's many people who catch the train probably couldn't. So for them, yeah, they're unreasonable. A commuter who wants to stay anonymous isn't a fan. It is completely asinine. The idea is to try and encourage people to take trains for the purposes of uh, reducing uh, carbon. Uh, All they're doing is creating a a situation which makes it difficult for everyone. Greater Wellington's Thomas Nash says they would need to take care implementing the plan. We have to do quite a bit of work to make sure we uh, avoid any unintended consequences uh, and, and we, will, we will do that very diligently over the next couple of years because it's going to take probably around two years uh, to do this. He says if the project gets the green light, they'll work with the region's councils on the details. Nick James there. Do let us know what you think if you're a park and a rider. Are you happy to pay uh, for your parking? It is the battle of the bank economists. Will interest rates be hiked this year or not? Westpac's economic outlook, which has been released this morning, predicts that the cash rate won't move this year. But ANZ last week predicted there will be two OCR increases. ANZ Chief Economist Sharon Zollner is with us now to talk more about this. Kia ora, good morning, Sharon. Morena. Okay, so quite a different outlook from the two banks. Why do you think the OCR is going to rise, well, twice? Well, perhaps the good news for borrowers is that I'm the only one saying that rates are going to go up, so <laughs> the odds are maybe not in my favour. But essentially, we look at what the Reserve Bank said in November. Uh, they basically said that they considered a hike and that if it looks like there's going to be any more delays in getting inflation down to where it needs to be, then the OCR would likely need to go higher. And then we look at the data that's come out since then. We, we do think that box can be ticked. There's no one piece of data you can point to as a smoking gun, but ever since the Reserve Bank called a, a halt to hikes in May last year, things just haven't quite gone their way, at least at the speed they would have expected. That domestic inflation has, has fallen at only half the speed they would have thought. So I'm just not sure they'll be confident that they've done enough at this point. OK, so we are all hoping you are wrong uh, and that there is no hike. But do you think it's not a matter of, of, you know, which is the preferable option in terms of what people want? What needs to happen? Well, that's basically it. It's not the Reserve Bank's call whether this is worth it, whether the pain that it's going to cause is worth it to get inflation down. They have a mandated inflation target and their job is to hit it in the medium term. Uh, and at the moment, there's just a few things that are looking like they're stalling. Costs are still very high. Pricing and tensions amongst firms have actually been rising for the last few months. Um, and similar things are happening offshore as well. It's just looking like this, that last mile of getting inflation down um, could actually be quite tough. What about the lag, though, in, in terms of the intra, uh, impact of the previous hikes? Do you think, uh, is there more of that to flow through? 
Absolutely, but we're about three quarters of the way through, and I think that probably is the strongest argument for them not hiking uh, next week would be that there is still more to come and they should just wait and see. But the counter-argument to that is that if they do hike late, then they potentially have to hike more. And that's what we saw in the 2000s cycle and even in the 1990s to some extent. They paused three times and then decided actually they needed to do more and rates ended up going far higher than they would have if they'd done enough earlier on. And so they'll be wary, but there's risks on both sides. So in your view, if not February, then April? That's how we're seeing it at the moment. But of course, we'll see what they say in their monetary policy statement. We'll all rejig our expectations based on that. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones running the show. Okay, so what should mortgage holders do? Well, a general advice, which is usually wise, is to split your mortgage up into different terms and take a pump on, on, on some shorter, some longer, for example, because it is really uncertain, as demonstrated by the range of opinions out there at the moment. Uh, if you if you do that, you rule out absolutely nailing it, but you also rule out the worst case scenario. And for most people, that has some real value. Westpac is calling uh, well for fiscal tightening. Is that your view too? Cut, cutting government spending. Well, yes, it's an interesting one. The Reserve Bank won't be relying on fiscal policy to solve their inflation problem for them uh, because this government wants to cut spending, but they also want to cut taxes. And so we won't have a clear idea about how those two things balance out in terms of overall stimulus into the economy, at least until we get the budget policy statement in, in March and really until we get the budget in May. So uh, so still a, a way to go on that front. But overall, I think the Reserve Bank will be hoping that fiscal policy is less stimulatory because it absolutely has contributed to inflation pressure over the last few years. Why is that inflationary pressure so hard to contain this time? It's looking like, um, well, we had this weird situation with the border closed, obviously. That led to the tightest labour market we've ever had because there was an explosion of demand for goods because people couldn't go on holiday. Just at the same time, the world's ability to supply those goods was very limited. We couldn't get workers in. Uh, So... We had this period of very strong wage inflation, very strong goods inflation, very strong everything inflation. And and the issue is that people can become accustomed to that. So firms um, have still been giving out quite large pay rises, even um, as labour's become more available, for example. So the the dynamics are looking a little bit different this time. It's not indexation like in the 1970s, but we are seeing perhaps some, some feedback loops that are just persisting a little bit longer than the Reserve Bank would have expected. It's, a, it's an unpleasant medicine they're asking us to take, essentially, for consumers becoming more price sensitive, firms finding it harder to push through their costs and their prices. So, you know, everybody wears it to some extent. But the, the, the prize is low and stable inflation, which, which really just helps everyone plan their future uh, much more effectively than when you've got inflation, which is high. And often, when it's high, it's often very variable as well. It makes planning. Just, really difficult and going to crimp the economy. Yeah, yeah. Now, just finally, Sharon, what about house prices? West back again, I'll bring them back in forecasting uh, prices to rise 6% this year, 7% in 2025. We've got house prices flat over the first half of the year, but if we are right that the OCR is going to go up twice in the first half of this year, then there, there would be a risk of renewed falls, I would say, because I think there's a general sense out there that Rates have definitely peaked and you just have to hang on. So if you can handle today's rates, then you're fine. But if the Reserve Bank does indeed reintroduce two-way risk for interest rates and the possibility that rates could go higher and we're not sure how much, then that could actually see quite a few people hit pause on their plans. Appreciate your time this morning. That is uh, ANZ Chief Economist Sharon Zolnay. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 